Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am alcohol-free as fuck. I live a self-led life, and I spend every single moment of my day helping other people do the same like right now. First of all, an apology. I've been absent. I had a working trip. The whole family did, actually. We went to London. There we were working at the Triton Poker Series. Uh, we were there for three weeks. And usually after I come back from a trip like that, because I don't get any days off there, I'm pretty full on 12 to 16 hours a day, three weeks solid. When I come home, I typically just, bleh, you know, I just need some time alone. Unfortunately for me, Liza and Zia actually flew straight to California from London. Uh, the US government still won't let me in the country, uh, so I couldn't follow them. And it's been really nice. Like I've just been at home being in my own company. I am starting to miss them a little bit now. I'm actually going to pick them up on Saturday. They're going to fly back home. But it's really great to have that period um, of peace. So apologies uh, for not being there for you and producing podcasts. But we've got a whole host of guests are coming up in the future. And I'm going to continue my um, alcohol-free uh, uh, personal life story, I guess you'll call it. And I'm going to do that today. going to do episode two today. Okay. But before I do that, I just want to give some love to a few people. First of all, I want to give some love to Ozzy Glynis. Ozzy Glynis has just celebrated her fifth Strive birthday. Glynis, I love you so much. You are so funny. You are so beautiful. You're so inspirational, so loyal. And I know you're really busy right now, um, but please make sure you find some time to take care of yourself. But thank you for being an ever-present in our community for the last five years. Just want to say congratulations to Clark. Clark has just finished the tougher phase of the alcohol-free as fuck quest, which means he has now gone 90 days without drinking alcohol. Well, actually, what's happened is he's actually 180 days. So Clark did 90 days with antibuse. He's now gone 90 days without antibuse, 180 days. So well done, Clark. I just want to welcome back Alan. Alan, we love you. We've missed you. Uh, this happens on Strive sometimes. Really beautiful, fond memories of our community. They just feel the need, just like I just have, to disappear for a while, uh, to burrow or hibernate in their little nest. Um, but they come back. Alan, it's really great to have you back. Love you, brother. And again, I just want to say a big well done to Nikki. Uh, Nikki has come into the Stripe community recently, and she's really got stuck in. She's attending the group coaching calls. She's doing the quests. She's really interacting. And I think that is amazing. So well done, Nikki. Anyway, we're going to get on to episode two of my life story, where I'm effectively trying to lay the groundwork here to show you how does somebody end up being reliant on alcohol. So I've gone all the way back to the beginning of my life, and I'm going to share my life story with you to try to paint the picture. Now, episode one was really short. I'm not going to go back and redo it, but I am doing a little pivot here in episode two, which I'm going to continue going on. So episode two talks a little bit about Eric Erickson and his uh, theory of psychosocial development. And I'm going to entwine that into my life story, right? So episode two is industry versus inferiority, which is a phase of Erickson's life, uh, Erickson's psychosocial development between the ages of five and 10, okay? Uh, and this is going to be talking about my formative years on Shelley Road, okay? So, introduction. 
Understanding childhood through Ericsson's lens of industry versus inferiority. Eric Erickson, a German-American developmental psychologist, posited that human beings go through eight distinct interrelated stages of psychosocial development over their lifespan. And each stage is characterized by a crisis or a challenge that individuals must resolve to develop a healthy personality and a well-adjusted sense of self. Failure to successfully navigate these challenges can result in stagnation and emotional difficulties later on in life. Now, for children between the ages of 5 and 10, the period of my life I'm sharing in this episode, Erickson identifies this stage as industry versus inferiority. And this crucial period is a battleground for one's self-esteem and sense of accomplishment. And at the heart of this stage lies the fundamental question, can I make it in the world of people and things? It's a time when children begin to compare themselves with peers, find role models outside their families, and engage in team sports, school activities, and community projects. Success in this stage, termed industry, manifests as a sense of competence and the ability to achieve goals. Children gain a belief in their skills and a feeling that they can influence the world around them. They learn the virtue of competency, where diligence, persistence, and cooperation are highly valued. Conversely, if children face excessive criticism or lack opportunities to demonstrate their skills, they may develop feelings of inferiority. These children often doubt their abilities and may struggle with low self-esteem, ultimately feeling inadequate when measured against their peers and societal expectations. The industry versus inferiority stage sets the emotional and psychological foundation for adolescence and adulthood. A well-navigated stage can lead to a strong sense of self, reliance, and a readiness to face life's challenges. Conversely, difficulties in this stage can create vulnerabilities that may resonate through later stages of development, affecting social relationships, mental health, and even substance use and reliance issues. In the coming episode, we will delve into how these key elements of industry and inferiority played out during my formative years in Reddish, a small community in Stockport, shaping my aspirations, relationships, and complex journey towards understanding my relationship with alcohol. Okay? So, industry versus autonomy, the neighborhood, and the birth of comparison. During those formative years, between five and 10, living on 54 Shelley Road in Reddish, Stockport, life was an exploratory tapestry of adventures and small conquests. It was a period of blissful ignorance where the thought of having less rarely crossed my mind. That was until Randy moved into the neighborhood. With his ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, a regular stream of pocket money and a toy collection that seemed endless, Randy was an unintentional catalyst for a seismic shift in my internal landscape. Suddenly, my life, which had felt abundant in its simplicity, paled in comparison. Meeting Randy was like flipping a switch. It wasn't just about coveting his gadgets or his lifestyle. It was about questioning my own worth through the lens of material possession and social status, a dangerous path that Eric Erickson might label as veering towards the inferiority side of the industry versus inferiority dichotomy. It was as if Randy's presence threw a spotlight on the vulnerabilities I had yet to recognize. My response? Petty theft, 
initially aimed at leveling the playing field between Randy and me. Now, while these acts may have seemed minor or even childish, they were in fact a manifestation of a deeper issue, this need for external validation. And that need would plague me throughout my life, particularly in my relationships. While I may not have been stealing from corner shops in my adult years, I was still subconsciously pilfering from my own self-worth by sourcing approval from external sources. And this became a significant problem in my relationships, a toxic cycle where I constantly sought validation to counterbalance deeply rooted feelings of inadequacy. What started as a comparison of Randy would evolve into a perennial self-measurement against everyone around me, whether it be partners, colleagues, or friends. And each time I fell short, I felt compelled to steal that missing piece from somewhere else, whether it was through the hollow praise of workplace achievements or the momentary high of social acknowledgement. Looking back, I can see how seemingly innocent period of my life, my time in 54 Shelley Road, was not as uncomplicated as it seemed. It was the stage where the seeds of external validation were in fact sown, nurtured by a newfound sense of inferiority. Those seeds would grow quietly and insidiously into a labyrinth of emotional complexities that took me more than two decades to even begin to unravel. Stealing for approval, the signs of inferiority. I used to steal crisps and chocolate from the corner shop on the way home from school. Once the shopkeeper caught me and called the police, and the copper told me to go home and tell my parents what I had done, and he would be over to see me in a couple of hours' time. I remember crying my eyes out to this guy. I remember being so afraid, not of telling my mum, but of my dad finding out. I went home, told my mum, and I made a promise never to tell my dad. And guess what? The copper, he never ever turned up. I felt less fear of the act itself, and more about losing face. And this could point to a lack of industry, self-confidence, and a yearning for external validation that would manifest later as alcohol reliance. Parental influence, the complex tapestry of trust, mistrust, and emotional labor. Navigating the choppy waters of Ericsson's industry versus inferiority stage was made all the more complicated due to the complex dynamics within my family. A dichotomy existed between my mother's nurturing presence and my adoptive father's emotional detachments, which had profound effects on my developing psyche. This dichotomy became the seedbed for a nuanced and complicated relationship with trust, especially regarding masculine figures. You see, my mother was both the emotional anchor and the guiding force during these formative years. She took on dual roles, functioning as both the nurturing feminine and the protective masculine in my life. Her willingness to provide emotional sustenance created a favorable ground for industry, giving me a belief in my ability to be competent and resourceful. But this dual role also set a complex precedent for my future relationships, particularly with women. My mother's necessity to embody both feminine and masculine roles became a confusing paradigm for me. And later in life, I would wrestle with control issues whenever women in my relationships expressed their own masculine energy a struggle rooted in those early years of emotional overdependence on my mother. As if navigating Ericsson's stage of industry versus inferiority wasn't already a demanding endeavor, my childhood years were complicated by a revelation that would forever change my understanding of family dynamics. My mother disclosed to me that the man I'd been calling dad was not my biological father. 
I learned that my biological father was from Hong Kong and had left before I was born. And this layer of complexity shook the already unstable ground I was standing on, adding an extra facet to my struggle with masculine trust and identity. My adoptive father's presence cast a long, unsettling shadow. He was emotionally unavailable, often seeping anger and frustration into the household's emotional climate. And this exacerbated feelings of inferiority, making it hard to build a healthy sense of industry. Even more disconcerting was the fact that this wasn't just a stepfather stepping into the role of begrudgingly. This was the man who chose to adopt me, which layered additional complexity to his emotional absence. Moreover, my biological father's early exit from my life, even before my birth, was another fissure in the already cracked foundation of trust. Learning that my adoptive father wasn't my biological parent did little to mitigate this feeling, as a primary male figure who was physically present in my life still offered little emotional stability or guidance. As a result, a mistrust of the masculine became deeply ingrained, a sentiment that would not only stay, but also grow like an insidious vine through subsequent stages of my psychosocial development. The words of my adoptive father, threatening to send me to a home, were not just a passing remark. They were a wound inflicted on a young, malleable psyche. I was picking wood out of a, a wallpaper at the time when he told me he would send me to a home if I didn't stop doing it. And that experience encapsulated the mistrust that would become a pervasive theme in my life, leading to a skewed perception of masculinity, a struggle with authority figures and complex issues in romantic relationships, including my future journey towards understanding my reliance on alcohol as a coping mechanism. The field as a fortress, football, emotional refuge, and the duality of industry and inferiority. In the midst of a turbulent home life and complex psychosocial currents, football emerged as my sanctuary, a place where I could exert control, gain validation, and most importantly, feel competent. The field became more than just a stretch of grass. It was my fortress of industry, a living tableau where I could actively counter the feelings of inferiority that were sown in other areas of my life. At the age of 10, winning the Player of the Year award wasn't merely a badge of honor, it was an affirmation that resonated deeply within my psyche. In Ericksonian terms, I had found an arena where I succeeded in feeling industrious rather than inferior. These successes were pivotal in bolstering my sense of self, providing a counterweight to the emotional complexities I faced at home. It was on the football pitch that I felt most alive, most real, most me. However, the field was also a mirror reflecting back my vulnerabilities. I was devoted to the sport, so much so that cancellations of games felt like personal betrayals. I remember the raw emotion that came within these moments, the feeling of being robbed of the chance to prove myself yet again, the disheartening experience of being left out of the team roster early in my uh, career was a significant blow. I remember the shame as if it were a physical weight pressing down on me. And in that moment, I felt inferior, echoing Ericsson's stage where industry and inferiority are in a constant battle. The highs were astronomical, but the lows were equally profound. Both served as important indicators of how desperately I was searching for something reliable, something dependable in a world that had shown me that trust, especially male figures, was a risky endeavor. The football field became a microcosm of the largest psychosocial struggles I was grappling with, a need for validation, a desire for stability, 
and a yearning for a domain where I could be unequivocally competent. The complexities I faced on and off the field were deeply interlinked. Each triumphant setback in football reverberated within the larger framework of my emotional development, shaping my coping mechanisms and laying the groundwork for future dependencies, including a reliance on alcohol as an emotional anesthetic in later years. Football was both my fortress of strength and my magnifying glass of vulnerability, a dual role that would echo throughout the various stages of my life. The stage and the field, the allure of applause. While football was one realm where I felt industrious, it wasn't the only one. I was also enamored with the performing arts. Singing, acting and playing multiple instruments were more than just hobbies for me, they were my lifelines. They offered another platform, much like football, where I felt validated. I was a mainstay in the school choir, participated in school plays and played in the school band. To an outsider, it might seem like the hallmark of a well-adjusted, multi-talented child. But there was an undercurrent, a shadow that tinged these otherwise positive experiences. These stages and platforms weren't just venues for self-expression. They were my theatres of validation. Each note I sang or played, each line I delivered, was another bid for external approval. Every applause and commendation was a tick mark against a creeping feeling of inferiority. A temporary hold against the emotional gaps that lingered elsewhere in my life. While my involvement in the arts could be seen as a successful negotiation of Ericsson's industry versus inferiority stage, the driving force behind it was less about the joy of competence and more about the need for external affirmation. These pursuits became ways for me to be front and centre, to hold an audience captive, even if just for a few minutes. What I couldn't understand then was that the applause would fade, but the questions about my worth would persist, leading me into complex relationships as an adult, always looking for the next source of validation. Much like my life on the football field, the stage offered a potent but short-lived antidote to my underlying emotional needs. The applause from a crowd, whether in a theatre or on a football field, was intoxicating, but it never lasted. And as I would learn in the years to come, no amount of external approval could fill the internal voids. The roots of this struggle were sown in these formative years, and their influence would continue to weave a complex tapestry in my life. The blessing and curse of autonomy, a tangled web of independence and emotional neglect. Wandering through the streets of Reddish, I experienced a sense of autonomy that was both exhilarating and deeply confusing. On the one hand, the freedom to explore at age 10 to roam unfettered served as a powerful affirmation of my growing capabilities. It was as if each new corner turn or boundary push represented yet another small victory in Ericsson's stage of industry versus inferiority. These adventures were more than mere childhood escapades. They were quests that fed my soul, instilling me with a strong sense of self-reliance and competency. But in this freedom also lay a shadow. My autonomy was in many ways a byproduct of absent boundaries and a lack of emotional scaffolding at home. I had to create my own sense of security, my own rules, because the adults around me were inconsistent in their guidance. My father was emotionally distant, absorbed in his own frustrations, effectively absent even when physically present. Meanwhile, my mother was stretched thin, pulled in multiple directions by the emotional and physical needs of a growing family. In that emotional vacuum, I found myself adopting a Lone Ranger mentality, convinced that no one else had my back. 
This absence of paternal guidance and maternal limitations inadvertently nurtured a form of emotional neglect. My parents weren't role models in establishing healthy boundaries, leaving me to figure out myself, a task for which I was woefully underprepared. This autonomy, for all its blessings, also sowed the seed to future relational challenges. I became hyper-attuned to my own needs, in part because no one else seemed to be. While my mother made Herculean efforts to provide emotional sustenance, it was like trying to fill an ocean with a thimble. Her love, though immense, couldn't fully compensate for what I was missing. This pattern of taking care of myself first, a survival mechanism born out of necessity, would eventually morph into challenges in adult relationships. I found it difficult to strike a balance between autonomy and emotional connection, between self-reliance and mutual care. All of this formed a substrate on which future issues, including my struggle with alcohol, could take root. I was industrious in my independence, yes, but that industry mastered a deep-seated feeling of emotional inferiority, of not being enough, of not having enough, which would follow me into adulthood. In this intricate weave of emotional and psychological threads, autonomy stood as both my greatest asset and my most glaring vulnerability. And as I grew, the repercussions of this dual-edged sword would become increasingly apparent, shaping my behaviors, my relationships, and my coping mechanisms in complex ways. The Hidden Lessons, Sexuality and Secrets As I navigated my pre-teen years, another crucial aspect of human experience began to unfold, sexuality. It was around this time that Randy introduced me to porn in a sex tape. The experience didn't just expose me to the physical act of sex, but also unveiled the social codes that men often subscribe to, which is concealing, hiding, and keeping their sexual experiences a secret. My mother, always a progressive parent, had purchased books about the birds and the bees and was always open to answering my questions and sitting down and talking to me about sex. My mother aimed to give me a healthy and comprehensive sexual education that she hoped would guide me into responsible adulthood. My father, however, was notably absent in this part of my upbringing. The only insight into sexuality that I gained from him was through hidden porn magazines. These formative experiences highlighted the dichotomy between my parents, one open and nurturing, the other closed off and absent. In retrospect, this phase marks yet another manifestation of Ericsson's stage of industry versus inferiority. My mother's open approach contributed to my sense of industry in understanding sexuality as a normal part of human life. On the other hand, my father's absence and the clandestine nature of my experiences with Randy could have contributed to a sense of inferiority reinforcing that something as natural as sexual development was a matter to be shrouded in secrecy and shame. The confusing messages around sexuality were another complicated layer in my emotional and psychological landscape. In the years to come, this would affect how I view relationships, intimacy, and even gender roles, further complicated by my existing trust issues and quest for external validation. Alcohol and gambling, early echoes of escapism and approval seeking. The relationship I had with alcohol began innocuously enough. As a child, alcohol was framed in the context of celebration of joyous gatherings and festive occasions. Baileys, baby sham, and pomaine come to mind. And this seemingly benign introduction to drinking masked deeper undercurrents of emotional tension, setting the stage for a complex relationship with alcohol later in life. During these early experiences, my mother's emotional absence was palpable as was my father's erratic behavior when intoxicated. 
and both contributed to a landscape in which alcohol was both coveted and feared. In those days, my father was a looming figure, both physically and emotionally. I remember the sharp, unsettling scent of alcohol on his breath when he returned from his Sunday pub visits, a scent that even now brings back a tidal wave of memories, not any of them pleasant. His face would be twisted in a combination of tipsy revelry and veiled aggression, his eyes slightly unfocused, one point in one way, one point in the other. There was always a tension in the room, and it would rise exponentially, filling me with a sense of dread. I was often tasked with making the Sunday dinner, and the fear of disappointing him felt like a weighted blanket, stifling and heavy. Simultaneously, there was a pull towards a mysterious world of adulthood that he frequented, the pubs, the bedding shops. I would often find myself waiting outside the bookies, staring at the blackened windows while he placed his bets inside. This early exposure not only piqued my curiosity, but also laid a dangerous foundation for later addictions to both alcohol and gambling. There's a disconcerting paradox here. As much as I found aspects of my father's lifestyle alarming, it was also my first model of adult masculine behavior, warped as it was. Subconsciously, there must have been a part of me that yearned to step into his world, to understand what lured him away from us so persistently. Maybe, just maybe, I could find their love and validation I so deeply crave from him. It's a haunting realization that despite a fervent vow never to become like my dad, I ended up inheriting some of his most destructive habits. At this stage in my life, it becomes clear that the roots of these challenges started much earlier than I'd like to admit. In Ericsson's framework of industry versus inferiority, this early experience of alcohol and gambling can be seen as a slippery slope into inferiority. A growing sense that I could only find approval and emotional security outside of myself in external substances and behaviours that ultimately became destructive. These glimpses into the adult world were not merely rites of passage, they were also warning signs, early indicators of the emotional detours and pitfalls that awaited me. A life poised on the edge, a teaser for what lies ahead. In the grand scheme of Ericsson's psychosocial stages, my childhood was a delicate dance between industry and inferiority. There were areas where I shone, where I felt a sense of accomplishment and self-worth that Ericsson would classify as successful industry. My aptitude in academics, my prowess in football, and my creative endeavors in music and theater, these were the arenas where I felt competent, even exceptional. And they provided a foundation for a self-belief that in an alternate universe, could have been the bedrock upon which a healthy, well-adjusted adulthood was built. However, the gaps in emotional nourishment, coupled with an early penchant for seeking external validation, muddied these waters significantly. The lack of a stable masculine role model led to a host of emotional insecurities and relational challenges, especially with women. My early exposure to alcohol and gambling presented both as a temptation and a warning, adding another layer of complexity to my emerging sense of self. These were not mere childhood quirks or harness rites of passage. They were signposts pointing towards future emotional and psychological struggles. As I stand at this precipice, looking back on a past that was both nurturing and neglectful, filled with both triumphs and tribulations, I can't help but wonder what does the next chapter hold? What other stages of Ericsson's framework will come into play as we delve deeper into my life's journey? If you found yourself nodding along, recognizing pieces of your own story and mine, or simply intrigued by the complexities of human development, you won't want to miss episode three. In our next installment, we'll explore the subsequent stages of Ericsson's psychosocial development theory and how they shaped my teenage years and beyond. 
just as the past can offer clues to the present, so can it illuminate the path to the future. So stay tuned and let's continue this journey together. Thanks for joining me throughout episode two. My voice is now going. (laughs) Until next time, take care of yourself, be kind to yourself, much love and strive on. And before I go, I just want to say, if you're listening to this, it might seem like this was really tough on my parents, but I want you to know that I love them both dearly. I hold no grudges against them, no regrets. I don't hold them accountable for anything. They were doing the very best that they could do, given the tools and the skills and experience they had at that time. Both of them were super young. And uh, as an adult myself, who's had two children, gone through very similar experiences to them, I have so much empathy and compassion and love for what they tried to do as parents. And I turned out pretty fucking spectacular. So they must have done a good job. Again, much love and take care of yourself, everybody. Strive on.